Good morning, Wellsprings. It's good to be with you again. There's a familiar trope, a recurring theme in horror movies and particularly in what are called slasher films, which were very much uh, the rage when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. And it kind of, this, this theme happens towards the end of slasher films where the survivor or the survivors believe that they have killed the killer. And they kind of take their foot off the gas. They kind of uh, relent. And then predictably what happens is the killer comes back to life or wasn't even dead in the first place. And the mayhem and the murder start right back up again. Now this is so much of a familiar recurring plot point that it's become something of a cliche. Like other movies make fun of this happening within slasher movies. Uh, and actually there's a recent Geico commercial um, that features four kind of older teens, young adults on a farm at night, kind of running scared for their lives. Um, and it plays it for laughs because they make one bad decision after another after another that imperils them. And at one point the camera pans over to uh, to the serial killer, to the murderer, who just kind of rolls their eyes at the really uh, uh, kind of pitiful decision-making process of these four uh, young adults. And so this theme, this trope, has become something of a joke, a kind of cultural touchstone that's kind of look at these stupid people and the decisions they're making. But what I want to offer is a, is a different angle on this moment in slasher films. The survivor or the survivors bedraggled, overwhelmed by what has befallen them in the last 90 minutes on screen. They just, they just want it to end. Maybe that's why they relent and they think the killer is dead when the killer is not. So what I want to offer is the kind of psychological or emotional reason behind this is not that maybe they're stupid. Maybe that's why this was so regularly recurring that it became a cliche. Maybe there's something true about it, which is that they're not stupid. They're traumatized. And traumatized people can sometimes make traumatized choices. I think of this moment in slasher films in terms of this moment of our being alive. COVID cases and COVID deaths are going down. They have been going down for quite a while now, a number of months. And there is promise in this moment. Opening up is happening in various parts of our society and some people and places in this society appear to be opening up with great care and consideration and some people and places in this society seem to be opening up with very little care and consideration at all. In a couple of weeks in our um, online worship service, Reverend Lee asked people to drop into the chat a heart or a heart emoji representing people that they have known who have contracted the virus or perhaps even died because of the virus. And so many of us dropped uh, recognition that that has happened to us. And I have to say that even in the last two weeks, I have personally known people, perhaps you do as well, who have since contracted the virus. It is not over. Yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel. But seeing the light at the end of the tunnel is not the same thing as actually arriving at the end of the tunnel. 
and sometimes I think so desperately wanting to be at the end of the tunnel paradoxically may actually create more distance between ourselves where we are right now and the true end of the tunnel and not just simply right now seeing its light. When the pandemic started, a number of people, and you may have seen this on social media, kind of posted a, a, a meme that was not entirely true, actually has some factual inaccuracies in it. But overall, it is true, which is that here in Philadelphia in 1918, during the dreaded, terrible influenza pandemic of that time that killed so many people worldwide, uh, that there was a parade to kind of... Um, uh, build uh, a sense of kind of national solidarity around the World War I effort. And what happened because of that parade, this part is true, is that it led to a really painful, terrible spike in influenza cases and thousands of deaths here in the Philadelphia region. There was a, um, an editorial in that same year, right around the time of the parade, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that said this verbatim, talk of cheerful things instead of the disease. The authorities seem to be going daft. What are they trying to do? Scare everybody to death? Talk of cheerful things, not of disease. We hear the voice of what we would now call toxic positivity in that, that somehow focusing on difficulty assures difficulty rather than giving us the opportunity to learn to work skillfully with difficulty and perhaps not create more difficulty. <coughs> At the one year anniversary recently of the pandemic, of the start of it, I put together a, a playlist of songs, about four and a half hours of them, songs about grief and loss, but also love and hope and resilience. And one of them is a, a song called Pompeii by a band named Bastille. And it's about two and a half minutes, just kind of perfect, I think, kind of a techno pop song. <clears throat> and it uses the d old destroyed ancient city of Pompeii by you know, Mount Vesuvius, by the volcano, as a kind of meditation on destruction and also the repetition of destruction that happens when we kind of check out. And there's a question asked in the song by the singer, how am I going to be an optimist about this? And it's very clear from the context and the meaning of the song that it's a rhetorical question. He's not feeling very optimistic that the repetition of the destruction won't just continue. So I do personally have hope in this moment. And I recognize that some of you might be in different places than me. Some of you might be feeling more optimistic. And my goal is not to argue with optimism today. It is to offer that perhaps there is something more that we need other than optimism or even hope. And you'll make your decision about what I'm talking about today is whether it is something that feels better or more skillful. What I'm talking about today is a part of this message series for the spring that we're calling The New Normal, um, subtitled How Not to Waste an Apocalypse. And it is about an opportunity for all of us to reflect on this last year of our lives as we do 
whenever it comes, move, keep on moving towards the end of this pandemic and asking ourselves, when we do return to normal, maybe we don't just want to go back to what was, but that we've learned something this year about what truly holds significance and meaning for ourselves. And that what is emerging can be better than what was. In the Hebrew Bible, there is um, a recitation, a regularly recurring pattern. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's also a little bit in the Christian scriptures as well, too, with something that I would say for the first decade after I became familiar with it really annoyed me. Like, I, I, I really found it terribly unfair and unjust and just kind of awful, like one of these parts of the, the, the Bible that just made no sense other than just to be cruel. And the, it's the kind of lineage that says, you know, um, uh, may the sin or may the blood of this person or may the, the evil that's been done by me be visited upon my children and my children's children. And, and again, it sounds so awful to the ear um, that somehow to predict that our children, our children's children, our children's children's children should suffer because of what we have done. It's certainly not my experience of God or the divine, and I don't believe human beliefs about that. I do not uh, ascribe to that understanding of divinity. But then there's something that shifted my perspective a few years ago around these types of passages. What if what they're saying is not prescriptive? This is what should happen. But maybe from their way thousands of years ago, way before pre, you know, uh, pre-scientific mindset, that maybe they're not being prescriptive, they're simply being descriptive, which is that pain and difficulty sometimes travel through families and communities and countries, not because it's right that it should be so, but simply because it is an observable phenomenon that it is so. I think in a pre-scientific way, what the writers of the scriptures were trying to get at was this thing we call transgenerational trauma. There's a somewhat well-known meme that I'm sure I've shared in the past and some of you have shared as well too that says trauma travels through families until someone is ready to heal. Trauma travels through families until someone is ready to heal. It's true of communities and countries as well, too. And what I believe about that is that it is a, a decision, a, a choice, a courageous one. And this change just doesn't happen automatically. The title for this message, The Fire Next Time, is taken from uh, an old African-American spiritual uh, kind of a reading of the Bible. And again, I read in this is, not ought. Not ought to be, but simply this is an observable phenomenon that happens. It's based on the Noah story, the flood. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. It's a bold, kind of opens my eyes when I read that. And again, I don't read that through the sense of God delivering plagues. That's not my experience or understanding, again, of the divine. But an awareness-making statement, that's very helpful. If we don't deal with this well, whatever the this is, we're going to perpetuate it. And it might even be worse. <laughs> Not too long ago, I watched the 60-minute stories about scientists who are studying the next and preparing for the next pandemic. And I was like, oh my God, do I really want to be watching this? But I did, and I was glad that I did. 
because it was all about what we can learn from this pandemic that might spare us the suffering, disease, and death of the next one because the next one may even be more virulent. But, you know, this question of the next or what might happen if we don't do the work now, it's not just about pandemics or plagues. It's about what so many of us have been noticing with broken hearts over the last couple of weeks in the life of this country around guns and racism and misogyny. And asking ourselves, when will it be enough? When will it end? What might be enough to be able to shift and open our hearts in such a way? that we cannot just keep on perpetuating the harm, the damage. There was, an, uh, I think, a really powerful and, and positive in its context story this past week. Uh, Kim Janney, a woman named Kim Janney, who I really had not heard of because I don't live in Boston. I don't pay attention to a lot of Boston local news. She became uh, the first woman and the first African-American mayor of the city of Boston in its entire history. As a black child in the 1970s, she had rocks thrown at her when she was on those school buses that attempted to desegregate, desegregate, excuse me, the deeply segregated schools of Boston. Again, this wasn't happening in the Confederate South. This was happening north in a you know so-called liberal, quote unquote, liberal city like Boston. And so, yeah, if you look at it, hey, she's the mayor now. Representation matters. This is important. And she becomes mayor of a city. I mean, this took my breath away when I read this. In 2015, the, the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, did a study of the net worth of white families and black families in Boston. And the median net worth of white families in Boston is $250,000. The median net worth of black families in Boston was 8 I didn't stutter. $8 versus $250,000 for white families. Allow that to sink in and we take a look at the historical legacies still playing themselves out of white supremacy and the reality of white supremacy in this country. It's against this backdrop that I think it becomes even more compelling that a city like uh, Evanston, Illinois, decided to start a reparations program specifically aimed about housing for black families. Again, I don't want to detour just towards this. You can read about this yourself if you haven't already. I think it is quite powerful. And it's not all the work, but it is something about facing the vast sources of pain and trauma and oppression in our culture right now, still here. James Baldwin wrote a book back in the 1960s with the title, The Fire Next Time, and it was explicitly an invitation to ask people, can we do the work back then to face the reality of what this country has been and the deep suffering of black people? what their experience has been in America. One of James Baldwin's great quotes that I think 
addresses racism and any form of transgenerational trauma, trauma across the generations. He said, you know, one of the reasons so many of us cling to our hates is that if we let go of those hates, we're going to have to face pain. I understand what he was saying like this, that if we want grace, if we want new beginnings, uh, hope, a new dawn, a, a new day, new forms of life. And first we've got to figure out our karma, all the causes and the conditions that have led to these places of perpetuated pain in people's lives. This is the deepest work of compassion is not just to be healed ourselves, but to be able to participate in the healing that is ongoing. In my own small scale way in my own life, I know there's through my own personal recovery from a substance use disorder. I think this plays out in micro ways in our lives and in macro ways in terms of our entire culture. What I understood in beginning with great fear and trembling my own recovery process was that I had to make sense of my past in order to envision a future that would be different. I had to face pain, both the pain that I had experienced and had been done to me, and the pain that I had caused. And some of the most important words that were ever said to me that allowed me to face this pain, but not face the pain unprepared or shut down in the face of the pain just over guilt or shame or because it just seemed too difficult to do. One of my first guides along the recovery path said this, as you make sense, he said, of your past, don't just make it an immoral inventory. Remember what you love about yourself. Remember what is good about you in the midst of all the pain and the things that you don't like about yourself. Some of the most important words ever said to me. Don't let it be just an immoral inventory. Don't go into pain unprepared. But hold in your heart that which your heart is most based on. Even if it feels somewhat distant from you. There's a British psychologist, author of a wonderful book, an influential book for me called The Compassionate Mind, a fellow named Paul Gilbert who has a name for this experience of being able to be in pain and with pain in a skillful and helpful way. He calls it safeness, different than safety. He says we need safety. Safety is you know safety from harm, safety from danger, safety from threat. But he says safeness is something else. It's a different part of how we work with our emotional lives. Safeness is that profound sense of being safe with others or within ourselves that gives ourselves a profound sense of warmth and kindness and soothing. Safeness is connection. And I believe that safeness and being able to cultivate the conditions of safeness in our lives I say this both within myself personally and as a mental health professional. It is essential in healing from various kinds of pain and trauma. I heard a 
a kind of powerful story about this uh, from um, someone named Phoebe Bridgers. Some of you might know who she is. She's kind of a indie folk uh, rock singer. Uh, her album this past year was one of my favorite recordings from this from this uh, from 2020 from this past year. Um, and she's talking recently in an interview about something that actually uh, a lot of us might have embarrassment or even shame about. See, she wet the bed well beyond when she was a child into her teen years up until she was 20. And she tells a story about this, about how that pain, that difficulty came to kind of alter within her. She says, the, the truth is the last time I wet the bed, I was 20. She says, it runs in my family. What I loved is that the person I was dating at the time, I did it. I wet the bed. Well, they were in the bed with me and I thought, are you kidding me? And I woke up, the person I was with, I woke them up and it was like, I'm really sorry, but, but I totally wet the bed. And they were like, I'm tired. I'm just going to scoot over. Just like nonchalant, non-shaming like that. And Phoebe Bridgers goes on to say, after they said that to me, I never wet the bed again. It was like a magical fairy tale solution. All I needed was acceptance and someone who didn't give a blank. And the problem was solved. I love those words. All I needed was acceptance and someone who didn't give a blank. She's talking about the reality of safeness. Now, I know for many of us in our pain, it's not a matter of just one act of safeness, of acceptance, of compassion, of being seen and unashamed by someone who cares about us may not make it go all away immediately. And yet, how often the experience of safeness, however long it might take, really does breed in us a kind of courage a kind of courage to face what needs to be faced and not just fall into certainly not toxic positivity or a kind of wishful optimism or a kind of vague hope, but a willingness to be able to face what hurts in skillful and effective ways so that we do not pay the pain forward any longer. And so in closing, I want to come back to horror movies, actually, and come back to perhaps the most well-known horror writer that there is in the entire world. That's Stephen King. And by the way, I had a chance to meet the great writer a number of years ago. Uh, the first congregation I served, uh, I was succeeded in that pulpit uh, by uh, one of Stephen King's children, a colleague of mine. And they invited me down to be a part of the beginning of uh, Naomi's, Naomi King's ministry. And um, I met very briefly Stephen King. And I got to say, he was just really humble and kind and kind of shy. And I got this sense of him that, you know, and I think you'd know if you follow like his Twitter or something, this is a really deeply caring and compassionate person who cares about the world around him. And it kind of pointed at something that, I haven't read all his books, but the ones that I've read, something that has always really kind of struck me about them is that 
in the midst of these terrible, horrible, horrific situations. He gets us to care about his characters. And his characters, very often the survivors, care about each other. What I see in Stephen King's writings, and I can see it in It, I can see it in Dr. Sleep, just name a couple of his titles, is that he points at that in the midst of horror, in the midst of pain, in the midst of our fear, there is a necessity for safeness in connection that allows us not just to survive, but to perhaps even thrive. And from that safeness, from that connection with ourselves and with each other, that we cultivate the courage to be able to live aligned with who we really want to be. And so perhaps today we can focus on in the midst of, yes, this hopeful and still uncertain moment about who and what, including ourselves, offers us safeness, the kind of safeness that invites us to face this life with all of its uncertainty and all of its danger, with courage and the kind of commitment that allows us to find our way through. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I ask if you would uh, pray with me. The spirit, divinity found in the breath and in the body and in the connections that abide even in the midst of distance. The kind of safeness that we know that we can be trustworthy even in the midst of what is difficult and painful. May we open our hearts and turn our hands this day to the who and to the what that inspire us, that put breath in the lungs when sometimes the breath is taken away because of fright or sighing. These forces of goodness and love and mercy that allow us to continue to find a way forward and to keep on moving toward that which our hearts are set most fully upon. Amen.